What'd you think of that Masters, Adrian? Um, I cried my eyes out. Isn't it amazing? I was literally waiting to walk into a yoga class, and I was watching the Masters on my, <laughs> on my, I know, for those of you who can't see us, which is all of you, I'm getting weird looks right now from <laughs> our guest and from Doug. Um, I was watching it on the Masters app. And, I love um, that app, by the way. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you can see the entire Masters on the app. Um, but I was just so, you know, so enthralled. I think we all were. I was nervous for the guy. Um, you know, everyone was like, oh, he's got a two-stroke lead going into the 18th hole. He's going to be fine. But thank God he had that, you know, those two strokes because he only won by one. But it was um, quite So I'm going to date myself. Not only the, the entire program, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> but I was at the 1997 Masters when he first won it. Was that 18 under? It was unbelievable. Um, but what I loved about this, I think says a lot about politics, is that America loves a redemption story. We mm-hmm. always have. I mm-hmm. mean, you can go through political history and from where I live in Alabama, people forget that George Wallace won his last gubernatorial t- four years uh, in this great redemptive story of winning the black vote because he went and apologized. And again, you can like go through political history and America just loves redemption. Yeah. You know, it's one of our values, quite frankly. They do. You could also apply the same theory to Britney Spears, her comeback career. I mean, not trying to be <laughs> yeah, silly, so. but it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. America loves it. Yeah. A good comeback. Um one of my one of my most treasured gifts is that Masters hat that you got for me last year. I've which been in I Masters. Still wear. I've, I've I've been lucky to go a couple times, and um, I got to tell you though, this would this was a Masters I wish I had been at. Yeah. To see it, him win, I, I I went last year when he played. Yeah. And I, uh, you know. Not well, quite the same. it was um, it was uh, probably one of the best comeback stories in sports. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, voice you heard in the background, it might be unfamiliar to you, but uh, uh, that is the great John Anzalone. And John is uh, joining me and my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, on uh, today's edition of The Electables. John, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut short your bio because yeah. it's so long and impressive, but John has polled. John polled for uh, Barack Obama's campaign in 08 and 12. He also polled for Secretary Clinton in 16. He helped elect uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Steve Sisolak in Nevada, and also Senator Kristen uh, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. He flipped uh, five GOP congressional seats this last uh, election. He's currently working for um, John Bell Edwards' uh, reelection campaign. And he's polled for uh, and worked for pretty much all the Democratic committees, the DGA, DSCC, DCCC. Uh, he currently lives in Montgomery, in Al- Montgomery, Alabama. So if we have some time, maybe we'll talk a little SEC because uh, of uh, his and uh, Adrian's connections down to in Arkansas. We do a lot of tweeting about our SEC viewpoint. This is also another American trait, is that once someone becomes really good at what they do, mm-hmm. Nick Saban, mm-hmm. You turn on them. I mean, right? I mean, Belichick. I mean, it's, it's so like it, it's the same thing sometimes in politics, but his success sometimes breeds like hate. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you get too good. You and get too want. good. and It's really you know. jealousy. It is. A yeah. lot of it's jealousy uh-huh. towards yeah. Saban that we have in the SEC because 
as a Razorback fan, a long-suffering Razorback fan, yeah. we have no, not even a close equivalent to Nick Saban, nor have we ever had that. Well, maybe he'll leave soon, huh? It's possible, no. I guess. Not no. going to happen. No. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Welcome, so glad John. to be here. Welcome, John. Welcome, Anzo. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Elrod, you want to kick us off with uh, questions? Yeah. So, John, just tell us about how you really got started in the polling business. I mean, what, what motivated you to start becoming a pollster? Yeah, you never think that. You know, you don't like, oh, I'm going to be a pollster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my dad thought I should be an accountant because I was good at numbers mm-hmm. uh, in elementary school. I grew up in this small town, 9,000 people in St. Joe, St. Joe Township in Michigan, which is the Chicago media market. So everything was Chicago. Um, and I really learned politics from the old mayor daily. I mean, I remember the day he died, mm-hmm. you know, transfixed on the TV as a young kid um, because everything was everything we learned about Chicago, uh, politics was Chicago. But right across the street in this little little town was the, the uh, township manager, and he was my uncle, Izzy DiMaggio. And he wasn't really even related. It was just that this was a very waspy town, and if you were Sicilian, American, or Italian, it was like, you know, you just, that's, you know, we did July 4th with all the Sicilians, things like that. You know, you just mm-hmm. had this group. As I use my hands to explain this, mm-hmm. people can't see that. You're like Beto. Yeah, and so he Definitely. would he would do he would do you know he did the elections too, and he would get me involved, and I would like you know he would drive and I would shove you know campaign stuff in the mailbox and I'd take the opponents out and things like that, and he he was my first taste of politics, and I grew up in a really conservative part of the country um, that part of um, Michigan was where David Stockman was our congressman. Ronald Reagan picked him as his OMB chief. And so, you know, even back then, we were kind of proud of that, but it was very political and we were very in tune that our congressman was part of that administration. He had to be replaced, we were part of that campaign. And so when I went to college, I interned for Howard Wolpe, who was a great Democratic congressman from the Kalamazoo uh, um, area. And that just got me into politics. And Mm -hmm. I thought I could like get it out of my system. And I had some really great mentors in my life, and one of them was David Wilhelm, who I worked for at a small public interest group, Citizens for Tax Justice in in D.C., and he got tapped in 1987 to be Biden's Iowa campaign manager when he ran for president Mm -hmm. the first time. And back then, Iowa was the national campaign, and I was like the first guy there, like just a young guy, an organizer, and anyone who's been around Joe Biden just understands that he is like the best boss. Like if you're the lowest guy, which I was, he still treated you like you were everything. Those are the best you know, bosses. Those are the best bosses. Mm-hmm. And David Wilhelm was this incredibly kind, great strategic guy, he wound up being Clinton's campaign manager yeah. in 92, the mm-hmm. youngest DNC chair. Um, and so that really started it off. And then I just went and did campaign after campaign and campaign. Um, and that's how I got to Alabama. I managed the governor's race in 1990. And our pollster was a guy named Greg Schneiders, um, who was my other, like my second mentor. Mm-hmm. That's how I got into polling, is that I got done with that campaign, and he offered me a job. Uh, and it was just a really good fit. Uh, I had the campaign experience, but I also, you know, just had kind of an aptitude for numbers and, and enjoyed that kind of um, uh, black and white, if you will, uh, of numbers and how to analyze it. And he kind of taught me the trade along with Keith Frederick. Uh, the first time I met you, I think I, I was at the DCCC in 2008, and we had a number of Southern Democrats in congressional yeah. seats back then. There are a couple more now, but um, 
we obviously have lost a lot of traction yeah. in the South. And you're known for your expertise of working for Southern Democrats. And so I'm just curious, we're curious, what is the party doing wrong right now in the South? And how do we improve? Sure. Uh, what do we need to do better? So I would I'd turn that on its head and say, let's talk about what we're doing right. Okay. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in 2016, we helped Roy Cooper become you know, elected governor in uh, North Carolina. Not an easy task. The only challenger to win a Trump state, okay, beat an incumbent. We helped John Bell Edwards in 2015. We're doing his reelection again right. in Louisiana. And he's up in 19. He's, he's up this year. Yeah. We helped Doug Jones, even though, okay, running against Roy Moore, you had to do everything right. Okay, and even the losses. Um, I was involved in Gillum, as you were, Doug, uh, in 2018. Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Those mm-hmm. are wins to me. We are we are making right. those states incredibly competitive. Joe Cunningham, another client of ours at ALG. We you know we took we took a seat in the South. Those are really important. Um, you know, back when you're talking about in 2006 and 8, man, we were, our, our client was... You were doing Bobby Bright. Right? We were doing Bobby Bright yeah. and Travis Childers Travis and Don Childers. Cashew yeah. and, and, and yeah, Charlie Melanson. and I was in the DCCC and, in 2006, right, and, and that Ron, was a cycle that we basically won back the yeah, house because of the be, South. And, yep. and, and we did it in some ways, again, that type of paradigm. The Southern Democrats elected Nancy Pelosi the first time, if you really want to do mm-hmm. it. And quite frankly, centrist Democrats did it again in You're 2018. Right. Right. That's a good and way to look at it. It is, you know, is and, and the reality is is that we, you know, we, we there's all this narrative about our party. And I think competition's good. I think a bunch of different ideologies and ideas are good. But what I what I have a problem with is that you got to respect all those ideologies. You got to mm-hmm. respect that the fact is is that Lucy McBath in Georgia 7, her electorate is different than, you know, AOC's in Harlem or Haley Stevens in Novi, Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. And you can go on and on and on. And, you know, we're a big party and we're a big family and we don't look like a country club, okay? But you got to respect the fact that everyone has an electorate and a culture. It's not right. just an electorate. It's a culture um, that is unique to that district, to that 650,000, et cetera, et cetera. And we got to give breathing room. Uh, quite frankly. And the example I always use is John Bell Edwards in um, uh, Louisiana. If you're an ultra progressive, you probably look at him and like just like can't even imagine him in your party. Mm-hmm. Pro-life guy, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing he did when he got elected on executive order was expand Medicaid. And immediately a half a million people got Medicaid, got health insurance. Right. Will you take that trade off? Okay. Will you make sure that he's part of that of party? Of course, I certainly would. Right, would. wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Except that, you know, a lot of ultra uh, uh, liberals would demonize Correct. that. And it drives me crazy me because they forget how Pelosi got elected speaker twice, and they forget the good and impactful things, which is what Democrats do. They create opportunities, and the things that they do are impactful to people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes. I do, too. And I think one of the issues that also drives me crazy, you know, being a fellow Southerner myself, in watching, you know, the, the Democrats slowly but surely over the course of the last 15 or so years lose the South. I mean, when I right. moved to Washington, D.C. in 1998, every single congressional 
district in Arkansas was held by a Democrat, Democrat. and both states, or I'm sorry, both United States Senate seats were, except for the Arkansas 3rd Congressional District, which is Walmart country, which is you know, notoriously very Republican. That's totally flipped now. I yeah. mean, the entire state is yeah. held by Republicans at the federal level. And one of the things that drives me crazy, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is the sheer fact that the Democratic Party overall, we're the ones who are out there fighting for many of the values that the Republican Party holds, which is, you know, fighting for better economic opportunities, fighting to give people better jobs, fighting to help the low income. I'm certainly not saying that the Republican Party is filled with a bunch of low income individuals. But when you look at especially some of these areas in quote unquote flyover states, I don't love that term, but that's a term that people identify with when you're talking about some of the states in the Midwest in particular, where a lot of jobs have been lost. I mean, the Democrats are the only ones who are actually trying to help those families get back on their feet. That's what we've always done. And it drives me crazy that we can't seem to figure out a way to message that, you know, as, at least from the national standpoint, right. to those, to that, to that electorate that we have essentially lost over the course of the last, you know, four presidential right. elections. Listen, the, we have found, you know, over the years, this is nothing new, is that how swing voters, if you will, um, our viewing Democrats is very different than how it used to be. The first mm -hmm. thing that always came out of people's mind in focus groups is that they're for the little guy. They're for mm -hmm. the middle class. Uh, whether we like it or not, and some of it is because we stand up for principle and we stand up for uh, important issues, is that the first thing that comes out of mouth, their mouth now is that they're the party of immigrants or they're party of minorities or they're – I had one uh, person in Ottumwa, Iowa, said uh, they're for Kaepernick. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like – Here's the here's my bigger point is that when we can talk about and, and we we won't when we can talk about middle class opportunity, economic opportunity, impactful things that we can do for healthcare. I mean Roy Cooper's a really good good example. I mean the fact is is that he's a guy from a small town who had a great story, just like John Bell Edwards, who went to West Point mm -hmm. and could talk about honor and values, et cetera. Right. And when we can stick in that lane and talk about the story that we're like you and we grew up like you, and we can talk about healthcare and we can talk about um, jobs, et cetera, even while talking about things like HB2 in North Carolina, mm -hmm. which people viewed not so much as the bathroom bill, but that it was hurting the economy, the boycott, right? Yeah. It, when we when we can get in our lane and speak our language and not get quite frankly taken off the topic uh, of the issues that the Republicans want us to talk about, um, we win. I mean, we win. Which is how you won. You know, a lot of people think because of Roy Moore and his like child predator ways that might be why you guys won, why Doug Jones won. But that's not necessarily the case. Well, I mean, that certainly didn't. The the thing Help, that the but. thing that I would say to ultra liberals, and I hate that term, but the problem is, is that I'm aggravated as a progressive, that I may not be considered a progressive, that the word progressive has been hijacked. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is my soapbox because I believe that you know if you're pro-choice, you're pro-gay marriage, you're pro-gun control, you're pro-climate change, you know, uh, or pro-environment, um, you know, you're a progressive and. If you're doing impactful things, if you're getting legislation packed like ACA and mm -hmm. Obamacare that helps people, you're a progressive. Um, and I believe that this term has been hijacked to the point where if you're only for utopian policies <laughs> that couldn't make it out of a committee, right, or whatever, 
that that's the progressive litmus test. And there's a big myth out there that primary voters have litmus tests, like Medicare for All is a litmus test, or Boycott in Israel is a, a litmus test. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, tell that to all the, again, Congress people who got elected and flip Republican seats. Okay. Tell that to Gretchen Whitmer or Steve Sisolak, right, who, you know, beat uh, uh, primary challenges, who said that they weren't progressive enough, right? You, mm-hmm. you see yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that, you know, we, again, we, we kind of got to get back to um, each individual state and what it means to be, you know, a Democrat. And quite frankly, a Michigan Democrat is what gets us elected. A North Carolina Democrat right. is what gets you elected. And the press seems to have this narrative that they'll say, you know, Democrats have decided that this is our message, as if there's a board of directors <laughs> that meets and says, okay, we're going to do this today. Exactly. Smoke-filled room. Yeah, right. right. It just doesn't work that way. Or, or, you know, Nancy Pelosi has to do her politics, which is different from what happened, you know, and she's she's good at what she does. But, you know, if they're taking a stand on immigration, that, you know, that makes it look like um, whatever. That's the only thing that Democrats care about. Right. And and that's just not the, that's not the case. What's happening in states and on the ground um, is where it all really, you know, it all really works. And it's different than I mean, we saw in in 2018 that, you know, we won 40 Republican seats. I thought we saw some very good message discipline by Democrats who were super focused on kitchen table issues, particularly health care and, and protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Right. And to your point about um, how do voters view Democrats in a lot of those district polls and state polls, they were viewed as the party that would, that, uh, would stand up for the little guy that was with the middle class. Um, but – you know, I think to your larger point, to the larger point we're all making, is that needs to sort of blossom into more of a national narrative because right now the definition of the party seems to be very blurry. We, to a lot. Of we people. don't have a national narrative. Right. I mean, we, we we get in these we get in these little skirmishes on wedge issues, and we always take the bait. And the fact is, is that you wouldn't know that we're for economic opportunity or that we have a middle class economic plan to make people's lives uh, better, or quite frankly, even a health care um, uh, uh, policy to improve or protect uh, um, uh, health care. I mean, the perfect example, and again, you know, we were willing to shut down the federal government over DREAMers, and it's admirable on the principle. Why aren't we willing to shut down the federal government on everything that the Trump and GOP took away from ACA? Right. I mean, there's things that we could do today to continually help, you know, real people on health care. But all Democrats in D.C. want to talk about is Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Okay, probably wouldn't make it out of a committee, even in a Democratic House. Okay, admirable. It's not. Oh, we're giving up. But do you think it's all Democrats? See, that's my problem with the narrative. I don't think it is all Democrat. I think there is a loud there's a louder sector of the party in DC and certain some mm-hmm. of our candidates on the trail. But if all if you go and, and if you, you work with a lot of these folks, like if you talk to a lot of the rank and file members, particularly a lot of the new members, they're they're Medicare for all some of them may support the the, the idea in theory, but they're they were running their races in twenty eighteen on the notion of protecting and uh, a lot protecting of, the ACA, right? right? Building on it, making fixing what isn't working. Uh, but in particular, protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Don't disagree with yeah. you at all. I mean, but again, why why we were talking about that at the electoral level in 2018 was because the Republicans made a big mistake. 
you know, they voted to take things away. They voted to repeal uh, ACA, et cetera. And so they gave us an opportunity to talk about pre-existing conditions, right, in the context of ACA and improving it, et cetera. My, my bigger point is, is that there are things that we can do now to help people. Like we could, quite frankly, go and change the rules, hopefully, to expand Medicaid everywhere. And you didn't, you don't need to have a republic or Democratic governor to do it, mm-hmm. right? Why should you have to live in Louisiana where there's a Democratic governor for Medicaid expansion? If we could go back in time, we'd probably change that with ACA. Yeah. So my bigger point is, is that we're never willing to shut down the federal government on those type of things, but we're willing to like take stands on wedge issues. Not mm-hmm. that they're not important. I'm not saying that they're not important. Mm-hmm. Dreamers are important. But the signal, I think, sometimes it sends, you know, um, to, to everyone in terms of, of the branding um, is somewhat backwards to them. Yeah, that, I, I think that's a good point that obviously. And I think that'll get me in trouble. I think people will be really pissed that I would say something like that. But the fact is, is that, you know, we don't have a narrative on economic opportunity. We don't have a narrative on those things that mm-hmm. are important every day, you know, to, to voters. And we've got to, we got to acknowledge that. We don't even acknowledge that there's an immigration problem. We don't do it. No, we don't. And that is, um, I think it's going to come back to haunt Democrats right. at the presidential level in 2020, unless Democrats really come forward and, yeah. and make a stand and are willing to compromise more on this issue. And back to what you were saying about the dreamers. I mean, look, obviously, dreamers are part of the fabric of America. I mean, they are they are all of us. Um, but I do think you raise a very important point, which is oftentimes we will go the extra mile. Democrats will go the extra mile over what many people perceive to be, um, you know, people who don't live within our borders. Or people, or rather, I should, should restate that. Like, people feel like we're not shutting down the government to help them ec- economically. Right. Instead, we're focusing on other people, you know, in, in other countries, or we're focusing on, you know, horrible situations that don't exist currently in the United States, instead of focusing on some of the issues that are, you know, hurting people's lives every day. And that's where I think Trump really came in in 2016. And somehow he spoke to these people and made them feel like he was going to They They were willing to take, you know, roll the dice on him. Yep, exactly. Uh, John, what's the hardest state to pull? Yeah, I think that <laughs> they're all getting hard. I mean, you know, we have and a why six, is that? Well, we have a six percent response rate with you know, and so imagine, you know, how many thousands and thousands of calls. Compare I mean, that to 10, 15 years. Well, ago. I mean, it would have been double. I mean, okay. you know, easily. Home um, phone line. Yeah, you know, you know. So I mean, there's easy states to call because like Iowa's really old, and you know, Pennsylvania's really old, and mm-hmm. there's people who still have landlines. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot more cell phones between 50 and 60 percent, et cetera. Um, but it depends on the electorate. And we were talking earlier, uh, Nevada, who we do, Sisolak, can be tough because you have an entire industry that kind of works at night, right? And so, you know, you have to be, sometimes be committed to do daytime phoning if you're going to get anything related to the casino industry, which was such a big part of the economy there. Um, you know, there's states like Florida, which, you know, Doug, you and I have worked in, which has this incredibly diverse population. And so you have to be committed to bilingual phoning uh, to get the right level of Latinos. And it's not monolithic like Latinos in Arizona. You know, you're, it's like all these different nationalities, Venezuelans, Colombians, et cetera. Um, But you have a really, you know, senior population. It's not like the senior population in Iowa and 
Pennsylvania. I mean, the number of people over the age of 80 is ridiculous, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, are you getting people like that? And so there's different states. There's some states that just have had horrendous voter files. New Hampshire was like that, just really tough to get uh, to poll because of the voter file. Georgia was like that for a while as well. And it can depend on the voting electorate. Easy to vote or poll Iowa because we get great response rates, but really hard to vote, call, you know, uh, to poll caucus goers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the process is really difficult and it's getting harder and we've had to, you know, really kind of double down on how we approach polling. And, you know, it, it's, it's almost not necessarily which state, it's which demographic group, you know, white non-college voters, for example, in small towns and rural areas mm-hmm. are really tough. We find that we can get non-college voters uh, on the phone, but often they're the ones in the service industry, but not the manufacturing or agricultural or think of any type of, you know, labor intensive job. Right. You know, even if you're in a county and it's small, we're getting kind of people from the county seat, but not from the rural areas. And so we've had to really be careful about how we poll um, and the interviews that we take. Uh, and naturally, we're doing a lot more work uh, online as well. Right, right. Yeah, I was just, just going to say, I, I don't envy pollsters in this current environment yeah. because more and more people are just not answering their home phone. Even my parents, who are over the age of 73, um, don't answer their home phone, yeah. you know, when it rings. It just, they, they, don't, they don't. Well, and there's now a problem. There was a great article today um, about the number of robocalls, like mm. billions of robocalls yeah. to cell phones. And half of those are scammers. And like the $350 million were people were built of $350 million in, um, uh, in scams. And so people even now, now there's like, if they don't see the right number, they're being, you know, cautious about that when you have whatever it was, 2 billion, you know, robocalls uh, every year. And so there's just a lot working against us uh, mm-hmm. right now. Uh, take us inside a focus group. Oh, they're my favorite. I, it, it's just an art form, right? It's like, you know, um, you know we have eight or 10 people in a room they don't exactly know why they're there, but maybe they can guess a little bit. Uh, and you just talk, you just start talking to them. And I, I would say it's the most insightful and value-added research that we probably do. It's, you know, part of a research plan. We rarely do focus groups without then following up with a poll. Mm-hmm. Focus groups aren't what we call projectable to a larger audience. Um, you know, they don't have a statistical relevance. Um, but they have insights um, that you would never get uh, uh, in a poll. And, and Gretchen Whitmer is, is a good example because her entire campaign was, you know, fix the damn roads. And she would say that, but we also would hear that in focus groups. Like yeah. people were like, why can't you just fix the damn roads? Right. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, things like that become uh, really important. And you just, you just get a flavor for what's going on uh, at such a different level. And you will pick things up that you would never know, or you'd show TV ads and they'll pick things apart that you would never have thought about. Um, and so it's really just a discussion. Um, and you have to, you know, the best um, description of a, a moderator uh, that I ever heard was it's like a, a water polo referee. When the ball uh, gets out of the water, you kick it back in. And that's what your role as a moderator. Just keep, So no opinion. You try no opinion. When, and when it gets off the rails, you kick the ball back in and you try to focus it. And you start, it's a kind of upside down pyramid. You start broad and you, you, know, you whittle away. Uh, to the very specific thing that you that you want to do, but 
they're incredibly valuable, and I still moderate a lot of groups. Uh, I mean, I, I dozens and dozens of them, um, and I would say that um, it, you know it's unfiltered. You know, I mean, in a poll, they, you can say favor or oppose, but focus groups will tell you what's behind the favor and what's behind the oppose. And I think that that becomes really important. And Anzo, for our listeners out there, can you sort of explain to them how you even put together a focus group? Well, it, it's just like a poll. I mean, we call people and we screen them down. So if we're looking for, you know, everyone wants to do Obama-Trump voters, right, or mm-hmm. whatever it may be, or just you know, undecided or soft voters who are persuadable, et cetera, et cetera, independents. And it's like a poll. You screen those people down and you invite them. Uh, you invite them to a group discussion. And people always like, like, who comes to these things, right? <laughs> but there's been studies on this. And I, I always talk about this. This is really important. We are all high information voters, right? right. People ask our opinion every day. Even if you're just a college-educated person, you know, in Peoria, Illinois, you know, people are asking your opinion, your spouse, your work, et cetera. Most people, most people in America, no one ever asks their damn opinion about anything. And, you know, think about that for a second. Their spouse doesn't ask their opinion. Your employer doesn't ask their opinion. No one asks their opinion. And so... The, there's been studies that show that you get an honorarium, right? You get money, 75 bucks, 100 bucks to come. And that's not why they come. They come because, one, they're curious, it's interesting, and guess what? They get to give their opinion. And I always start the group by saying, listen, this is like the political correct free zone. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear the thing that's in the bubble of your head, right? Because we are in a culture now where you have to be really careful about what you say. And so when they get in there, I want them to know that this is like the place where you're not going to get judged, you know? And I want to hear what's in the bubble of your head, because guess what? That's the golden stuff. Right. You know, that's what we really need to see. Right. Um, Okay, so Anzo, based on what you've seen, what do you think, and I, I know you're, you know, are you, are, well, I guess you are, you, are you affiliated with any, with any candidates right now that you can publicly disclose? Sources say, sources say I'm, I'm affiliated with Joe Biden, my okay, first boss. Okay, so. What do it. sources know? What do sources know? <laughs> well, let me ask you this, then. You're, you're the perfect person for many reasons to ask this question. And this is something that I think intrigues a lot of us right now. Um, you know, what do you think is the most important thing to Democratic primary voters. What we see in a lot of the polls that have been done so far, the publicly released polls, is that you see voters saying, and caucus goers saying, oh, you know, I really want to support this next generation of Democratic, you know, party leaders. I want to go with a new fresh face. I like Kamala. I like, you know, Mayor Pete, et cetera. But I really want to beat Trump. That's my number one priority. And I think Joe Biden is the guy who can do it. Like, what do you think is the most important thing to them yeah. right now? And do you think if it is electability against Trump, do you think that will continue to be the most important you know, thing? It's interesting because, uh, again, Joe Biden was my first boss and I love him. Um, and, and so, you know, mm-hmm. know that going into it. But all the public polling has been really clear that if you're looking for, like, determining factors or traits or characteristics, it is beating Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I also find really interesting about um, Biden and quite frankly Bernie Sanders is that when they ask enthusiasm questions, they both lead on enthusiasm question too, and we never really hear that. And I I think we get in this echo chamber in D.C. about what again what the narrative is. Younger generation. Well, guess what, folks? 
go take a look at the age brackets of the 2020 Democratic primary universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the 18 to 35-year-old group could double and wouldn't have much of an impact on the election. The Democratic primary is still fairly senior, okay? And it will always be, you know, until later on. And so this whole next generation thing tends to be more of a DC narrative. And we have a lot of young people and they're exciting. The other thing I would say is that I really believe that this is becoming or this will become a pragmatic, the, the pragmatic election. Mm -hmm. There may be people, again, who, you know, I really would like to vote for the so-and-so, but I'm gonna vote for the person who um, can beat Trump. Uh, and again, I think Biden uh, fits that mold for several reasons. One, experience, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a given. Um, but it's a little deeper than that, quite frankly. It's because he's genuine and authentic, and people, you know, think he has a certain level of magic communicating to middle class voters, and so it just kind of all wraps together and kind of purpose start. And he's very approachable. You know, I mean, authenticity yeah. is so important, and I think that's one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders is so popular, why Mayor Pete is really catching fire. But I think that when people see Joe Biden, they have this immediate connection to him, where they feel, you know, this is why I. Think they think they know him. They feel an, like they know they him. They feel like they know yeah. him, and I also think it was an asset to, to an extent that. You know, people made such a big deal about, you know, his his hugging and, and whatnot, because it first of all, it didn't hurt him in the polls. Didn't hurt him in the polls at all. And secondly, it just reminded people, wait a minute, this guy is so empathetic and he can connect with so many people. And sure, maybe you've got to, you know, take a step back and, and, you know, make sure that people don't feel uncomfortable. But that's also one of his greatest assets, that he is so warm and so friendly and so approachable as the former vice president yeah. of the United States. And again, I would go back. The one thing that I think it doesn't get reported very often, um, but it's really interesting about Biden is that in terms of enthusiasm, he leads. Mm -hmm. the, the percentage you say they're enthusiastic mm -hmm. about his candidacy and the percentage you say that they were exci they're excited about him getting in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, it doesn't fit the D.C. narrative, um, but, you know, there's a huge disconnect between the D.C. narrative and, like, real voters. Yeah. And we know that. And I don't know why it doesn't feed back up, um, but there's a lot of myths to be broken about the primary electorate, including their ideology. They're almost 50-50, you know, liberal versus conservative moderate. The, the thing is, is also that if you take a look at the polling, Biden leads with those people consider themselves uh, somewhat liberal. So again, they, they, con they consider him progressive. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, there tends to be the story that you know, every story in the, in the New York Times or the Washington Post is Joe Biden, the centrist, Joe Biden, the moderate, you know. Right. And the fact is, is that that's not how real voters necessarily see him. Right. When you look at these polls and take them with a grain of salt because it's still early, but um, the crosstabs and the crosstabs mm -hmm. are the guts of the poll. Mm -hmm. Right. This is where us nerds live. <clears throat> what are what are some of the questions or the crosstabs that you that you uh, automatically go to? Is it yeah. the enthusiasm number? Is it the, I'm, I'm, you know, what what catches your eye first or what do you seek well, out? What, in every, every poll, like if I'm working for, you know, for U.S. Senate candidate or for a governor's candidate or whatever it may be, I look for intensity, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's another thing about Biden. You know, the percentage of, you know, he's like 90% favorable ratings with um, primary voters, but is very favorable, right? The intense, that's like almost love, right? It's like the very unfavorable with Trump is hate, you know, however you want to put it. Um, 
is that it's very high. So I look at intense rating, the very favorable, because it's hard to move people off of very favorable. You have to like do something fairly dramatic, right, to get off of that. And so you have someone like Biden. Unless you're Trump. Unless you're Trump. <laughs> right. So like Bernie is has has a higher unfavorable. You know, I mean, he's he's you know he has a universe of detractors but his his favorite total favorable rating isn't that different than biden's but biden translates his vote into a much uh, to a higher vote and it's because of his very favorable it's because again this what uh adrian was talking about people know him uh they feel like they know him at a different level you know genuine authentic caring compassionate they've kind of they've lived through his tragedies you know with his son things like that um, and it just tra- it, it helps translate uh, into a greater vote. And so I think that that becomes really important is that very favorable or what we use often call the solidity. Gotcha. Um, real quick, have you been looking at fundraising numbers of all the candidates? April 15th is obviously yeah. was a key date. You know, listen, the Any? money is mind blowing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that when you combine the Democratic candidates, it was 66 million, which I, I 66. I want to, there's two points about that. One is it's twice as much as Trump raised. So I think that's good. And it's equal to what Russell Wilson got as his signing bonus, <laughs> right? So it just right. puts everything in perspective. Um, and listen, it's exciting. We should be as excited as Democrats, whoever you're with, to see kind of these enthusiastic numbers, right? Um, I mean, some of that's transfers. It's a lot of small. Yeah, it is transfers. But some of lot, them are transfers. Yeah. But you, we also saw there's a lot of small donors. A lot of small donors. But you know what? They're also going to realize that they got to go do traditional stuff. They're going to, you know, they're going to have to uh, make phone calls. They're going to have to do events. Some of them say they won't. I get it. But there's still a lot of traditional, um, uh, old-fashioned hard work uh, to do as well. You you probably can't just live off of small donors. Maybe someone like Bernie can. Maybe someone like Beto can. Um, but you know, we'll Elizabeth see. Warren. What's that? Elizabeth Warren. Well, you know, listen. E- this is first eighty-five qu- percent burn rate. Right, burn rate is, is this is the first quarter. Okay, let's see. Really, when we talk at, after the second quarter, that's where the the, mm-hmm. the you know the rubber hits the road, right? Mm-hmm. You, you might say, oh, this is the low-hanging fruit. This is the easy money. What about what's the recurring small donor? I mean, exactly. Obama. He had recurring. There are people mm-hmm. who are saying, oh, I'm going to give this guy every month. The check box and yeah. recur. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, I think it's exciting for almost everyone because, you know, you can hire staff. You can, you know, for some of them, they can actually do paid communication. But, you know, this is the lifeblood. And most of them, quite frankly, have enough to live a little longer, you know, six months. And some of them who the burn rate is high you know, are going to have to worry about, okay, can I sustain this? And you become the Tim Pawlenty, right? I right. mean, think about, you know, mm-hmm. Scott where, Walker, exactly. you know, Scott, Scott Walker, Walker said, right. okay, yeah, not going to go in debt. Well, with Elizabeth Warren, while very high burn rate, <clears throat> I, it, the, and I don't know what was the strategy inside of the campaign, but they ended up, I do believe they have the most act, most staffers of any 160. Candidate. That's right. So, and spread across a lot of the early uh, primary states. So, you know, the, the thought there could be, look, I've got all this money in my Senate account. I'll transfer it. I'll make this investment and see if and roll the dice. Yeah. Right? And, and listen, again, uh, I think she's great. I think she's the contribution to the Democratic Party is high. I mean, her concern is, you know, where she's polling in New Hampshire. I mean, there's some early right. polls. You know, we can all say, oh, early polls don't mean shit. Guess what? 
some early polls mean something. Right, sure. especially because of her proximity. Yeah, I mean, she's a favorite daughter. She's spent $100 million in her elections on Boston TV that goes exactly. to dominate. And so, you know, you've got Bernie and, and a favorite son and a favorite daughter in New Hampshire, right? And so she's got to be concerned. And I think that, you know, there was a hit there with the uh, state bar mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, certificate. Um, and that's just a reality. Um, I'll also say she's incredibly focused on message. Uh, and I think that uh, of the announced candidates, she does the best in terms of defining her message and what an Elizabeth Warren candidacy means. Exactly. I want to get your thoughts on Bernie and his performance so far in some of these early polls. I find it personally very interesting. And yes, I'm aware that there are 18 or so people in the race or whatever the number's up to these days. But I find it very interesting that he is, while he's either first or second place in Iowa, depending on what poll you're looking at, obviously Biden's not in the race yet, but he's still being polled as if he's a candidate. Bernie is anywhere between 16, 18%. But Anzo, you were there on election night. He got almost 50% in Iowa on election night in the Iowa caucus. Do you think that this is a spells out a potential long-term problem for him? Or do you think that we should say, hey, there's other people running in the race. We shouldn't expect Bernie to do as well yeah, I, as he, you know, as he did in, as a here, candidate. Here's the, here's where, again, where I just think that there's a disconnect on the DC narrative. There was a story today. I can't remember what it was at Times or Washington Post about, you know, there, there's these Democrats who are worried about Bernie's momentum. Oh, yes. and, mm-hmm. and I was like, what the are you talking about? <laughs> you can curse on this. Yeah, and it's like, and I just, I didn't understand, like, are you kidding me? I mean, Listen, you you know, his fundraising numbers are are, um, big. He's still holding a a good vote. But like you said, you can you can do the math that there's another five or six candidates in the Bernie lane Mm -hmm. who, if they just nibble a point or two off of him Mm -hmm. and each of them nibble a point or two off of him once they get known, um, you know, he loses 10 points. And those people aren't nibbling off of Joe Biden. You know, right. it's like different. Yeah. It's, it's a different lane. Um, and so, uh, again, I, I, you know, it is early. Uh, you know, a lot of different things are going to happen. Um, the difference between a Bernie's numbers and a Biden's numbers is that people tend to like Bernie's message, but they're not in love with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, Biden's enthusiasm numbers higher than Bernie's when you ask Democratic primary voters. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a public poll um uh, uh, recently, I can't remember which one. I think it was an NBC poll. Um, so it's just going to be interesting because you know he's not the most likable guy, all right? I mean, Hillary voters didn't like Bernie, and mm-hmm. Bernie voters didn't like Hillary, right? We get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone loves, um, you know, Biden. Like yeah. it's his second choice. Bernie's second choices are Biden people. Same down the line. And it's just going to be interesting um, whether you know charm offensive has never been a term for Bernie. Uh, and is he going to be able to show a little bit right. more of himself this time? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Right. Well, he, he was getting good reviews for his uh, Fox News yeah. uh, town hall. Yeah, that he did I last think we should night, give him credit for was, that. Uh, I actually think that more Democrats should go on Fox News. Um, obviously, yeah, and, it depends on the moderators. but And I agree with that. I think there's a big difference. And I think the DNC was exactly spot on by saying we are not going to do a sanctioned debate with, the, with Fox News. But I think that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go on Fox News and do a town hall. Yeah. There's a big difference between doing, you know, hosting a debate with you know, well, two consecutive nights in a row with 10 candidates on each stage 
not knowing where the questions are coming from. Are they coming from Trump's operation, whatnot? And then a candidate deciding on their own, I'm actually going to go do it. And, and this is a bigger to a bigger point of where Democrats have to fill a void mm-hmm. out in America. You know, there are there's this narrative in small towns, rural America, where there's only one voice. Right. It's the conservative voice on digital, on Fox, et cetera. And Democrats have to go in there and compete and they're not trying to win it. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They're just not trying to get their ass kicked in, you know, a rural county, 75, 25. We just need to be at 70, 30 or 65, 35. And you do that, you know, you do that in multiple uh, 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 rural counties in Wisconsin. We win. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like we have to fill the void. We have got to compete. We right. cannot just, you know, persuadable voters, you know, uh, uh, are important, but we got we got to go in there and narrow the margins in rural America, small town America, and we can do it. People do it all. I mean, we have examples. Roy Cooper did it, you know, mm-hmm. in a purple state. Um, Gretchen Whitmer did it. If you look at her numbers in northern Michigan, right? And we got to we got to have a countervailing narrative. You know, and I used to do a lot of Fox News before I signed with MSNBC, and I'm from a small town in in rural America, in in Arkansas. And while people that I went to high school with, you know, people that my family went to church with growing up, would say to me if they saw me in in Salome or sometimes they'd, like, message me on Facebook or whatever, they would say, while we don't agree with your viewpoint, it is helpful to have somebody on Fox News who has real experience, who's worked on campaigns, who's worked in government, giving the counter-narrative, giving the counter-viewpoint. So I do think it's important that Democrats continue to have a presence on there, and that does transcend to town halls. Because, again, there are, you know, I think when we looked at the stat during the 2016 campaign, I think about 20% of Fox viewers are either moderate Democrats or or Democrats or independents. And that's a good chunk of people who need to hear from folks, need to hear from candidates, need to hear from people in the Democratic Party. Or we need, to, we need to go out there and do paid communication in those areas. Exactly. We need to do digital. We need to do rural radio. Yep. is so huge, important huge. in campaigns. You know, and TV. I mean, the fact is, is that we've got to communicate. And most of it, I think we have to pay for it, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. we just have to have a commitment, you know, to go to Ottumwa, Iowa, and, you know, spend money there. And, and have most a voice. of these rural radio stations are not just going to say, oh, sure, come on my show for an hour, no. right? They're going to no. say, well, we have, you know, we've got a budget, we've got a small budget, so therefore you got to pay, you got to put some ads on our network, yeah. then we'll think about having you on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I think we could uh, listen to you talk for the next hour. I do want to, I think I'm going to try to spice things up here a little bit. October 26th. In Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the Arkansas Razorbacks, yeah. Adrian Elrod's team, mm-hmm. takes on the Alabama Crimson. We should get together. What's going to happen? We should get together. Yeah, we should go. I mean, and watch us get pummeled by well, the Crimson. Tide. I do want to say the one stat that we talked about earlier, which is Alabama, where I live, mm-hmm. and I've been there for 25 years, even though I grew up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only state who uh, in the SEC that has a Democratic senator, Doug Jones. And we're going to keep him. I'm telling you, people underestimate this guy, and they, they, they're going to write him off at, you know, you shouldn't write him off. I mean, it's going to, he could be Clemson. Did, Nick Saban <laughs> supported him, right? 
Nick Saban actually did a great ad for Mansion. That's right, uh, Mansion. He That's grew right. up with Mansion. They, they went to school together. They went to school together, and they played like Pop Warner uh, football. Right. And, and and Saban's dad was the coach. Right. Um, Saban is interesting. There's two people I would want to have a conversation with mm-hmm. um, about politics, and that is Nick Saban because I think he's really a Democrat. And Paul Feinbaum, who's the you know I the mouth to his of the podcast South, listen to him. He's like the you know the SEC guy. He's this mm-hmm. incredibly unique guy who looks like he should be you know a, a lawyer or an accountant in Manhattan, but he actually grew up in Tennessee. Um, and I think that he probably has an amazing uh, connection with voters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see you in Tuscaloosa. Roll yeah, t- let's. Roll maybe tide. we can go do the electables down there. <laughs> Anzo, John Anzalone, thank you so much thanks, for man. You guys joining. are good friends. Thank you, and thanks so much for having me. We, we want you to come back, too. I'll be back. For Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been uh, The Electables, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>